Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. There we go. There we go. Well, good morning, church. You know, as, as Ben was praying, I was just like, yeah, it, it is back to school time. Can you believe that? It's like summer just evaporated in the thin air, it seems like, and, you know, it's a little chilly. It's like we actually slept with the windows open last night in our house, and it's like it is, I don't know about you, but I'm not ready for fall, winter, that, this is always just like, man, this time of year, I'm just like, man, can we just have a, another month of summer, but oh well, this is, it's the way it is, this is the way God's designed the world, so we'll live with it. Uh, my name is Michael, I am uh, the lead pastor here, and I'm glad to uh, glad that you're here uh, to worship with us. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're looking at mission, uh, specifically the, the mission of Jesus, because we see here that Jesus came on a mission. He was sent to accomplish a purpose, and that purpose was to defeat Satan's kingdom and to reestablish the kingdom of God, to reorder things from the way they were created at the beginning. So if you recall uh, from last week, if you were here, Jesus revealed his true identity to his disciples as the Messiah, and he is the one who will conquer the demonic realm. And Jesus announced his intention as the Messiah, saying, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So today, I want to show you how Jesus builds his church, and the way Jesus builds his church is through us, through people. Jesus builds his church through people by sending them into the world to preach the gospel. So we are ambassadors for the gospel. We bear witness to King Jesus with our words and our deeds to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, wherever we live, work, and worship, as we say. And at the same time that we are proclaiming uh, the gospel to people, we are also announcing the victory of Christ over the unseen spiritual and demonic realm. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's dig in, grab your Bible, and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're going to grab a couple verses from Luke 9 and then spend the rest of our time in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. Luke 9 verse 1. This is where Jesus sends out his disciples. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That's all we'll do in verse, in chapter 9. So we see here, Jesus sends out twelve disciples, right? Twelve disciples, sends them on a mission trip, and he gave them power, power to cast out demons and power to cure diseases. All right? Now, jump ahead one chapter. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, let's pause here. So Jesus sends his disciples again And this time, it's another mission trip, but this time it's a different number, right? This time it says that he sends, in the ESV, it says he sends 72. Well, let's 
Let's talk about that number because the number is significant. Does anybody have a Bible that says 70? Anybody? Daniel Kemp, Sarah. So I have a couple Bibles that say 70. I guess everybody else's say 72. Well, um, it's actually evenly split, it seems. So the uh, ESV, the NIV, the NLT, they all say 72. The New American Standard, NASB, the King James and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they all say 70. So there's two different uh, representations here. So which is it? It's one or the other, right? Well, the, the problem is that there's evidence for both in the original manuscripts. So, the, and the evidence is kind of evenly split between the two, and so scholars, is, it, it's a kind of a coin flip. You know, it's, it's really just like we don't know because there's evidence in the manuscripts for either answer. So, I think that the correct number is 70, and, I, and, and that's not just some random little weird interest of mine. It, it's, I think it's 70 because of the theological significance of that number, and I'm going to explain that to you. The number 70 represents two things. It represents the nations of the world and God's desire to reach those nations, all right? The number 70 represents the nations of the world and God's desire to reach every nation. But there's a backstory, and I got to tell you the backstory to make my point. And the backstory goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We did this last week. I won't go as long today, but this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, and the sin and rebellion that was growing in the world grows and grows and reaches this crescendo in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Remember that? The Tower of Babel. And so in Genesis 11, it tells the Tower of Babel story where human beings, are they join together, they unite as one to join in this demonic rebellion against God. And so God judged them at the Tower of Babel. And do you remember what he did? Sunday school class, do you remember what God did? He confused their languages, right? He confused their languages, and then he dispersed them across the earth. These, they, you know, he sent them in all different directions because their languages were confused. Now, a chapter prior, it gives us the list of all those nations that came about as a result of the judgment of Babel. So it doesn't tell it in order. Genesis 10 tells us all the nations. Genesis 11 tells us the story of where those nations come from. So Genesis 10 gives us a list of all the nations that were formed as a result. And so if you have little notes in your Bible, they'll say it's called the table of nations. Guess how many nations there are? 70. 70. Who said that? <laughs> ah, there you go. All right, Williams, he's with me. There were 70 nations. And that number was significant. It was significant because that represented the whole planet. That was like the whole world. The whole world was united, but God judged them because they were in rebellion, and he sent them. And so he, he scattered them into 70 nations, and then those 70 nations were sort of given over to their sin because God started over after that. Uh, some scholars have used the word of disinherited. It's like God just disinherited the nations and says, I am not going to try to deal with humanity as a whole. I'm going to start over and create a new nation. And he's going to create a new nation that he's going to claim as his own. Now, Deuteronomy 32 tells us that those nations that were scattered, they were given over to demonic powers. They were given over to be ruled by what we would call pagan gods or idols or demonic powers. So whenever you read through the Bible and you see things, well, over in this area, they worship Baal. And over that area, they worship, you know, Molech or whatever the pagan gods are. 
the scriptures tell us like these were real beings, real entities that were worshipped by people, and they were opposed to the one true God. So those 70 nations were scattered throughout the world. They were put under the power of these foreign gods. And then the next chapter, Genesis 12, tells us the story of Abraham. And the story of Abraham was from one of these nations, from Ur of the Chaldees, God picked one man, Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I want to do something special through you. I want to start over with humanity. And I want to make a new people out of you, Abraham. I want to make a brand new nation out of you. And so Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, they give us stories of a covenant that God made with Abraham. And God said to Abraham, I want to do something special through you. Does anybody know what he's going to do? He's going to give him a bunch of what? Descendants, right? And what's all those going to, descendants going to become? Many nations. Remember that? Nations will come from you, Abraham. Kings will come from you, Abraham. So somehow through Abraham, this one guy, through his family, God is going to make a way for all of these nations to be reconciled back to God. So here's the point. The number 70 represented all the nations of the world and the demonic powers that rule those nations. And by the end of the book of Genesis, some of these numbers show up again. We have Jacob's household, which is a descendant of Abraham. Jacob's household goes down to Egypt and there's how many sons? Twelve. How many persons? Seventy. So here at the end of Genesis, we have twelve sons and a family, a household that is comprised of seventy people. And then in the book of Exodus, um, there are twelve tribes in Israel. And then God told Moses to appoint a leadership council in the nation of Israel. And God told Moses to appoint seventy elders in the nation of Israel. So if we, if, if we kind of put all this together, we're seeing that God is indicating Israel is going to have some kind of role to bear witness to God to the world, right? And, of course, we see that taught explicitly. Israel's nation was to be a light to the world. That was their role. All right, so now fast forward back into the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out 12 disciples. And then that's... The, the, that's like a, a renewed nation of Israel, represented by 12 disciples. And then, Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 disciples, which represents the, the witness of, of uh, God's people to the world. Now, what does he tell these 70 people to do? Well, he, he tells them, you're going to cast out demons. Well, the demons are the ones that are in charge of the nations, right? That's, that's what uh, we, we, we learn in the Old Testament. So Jesus says, you've got authority to cast out demons. So that indicates Jesus' power and supremacy over the demons in the spiritual realm. He has authority. And Jesus says, you're going to cure diseases. So that indicates that Jesus is reversing the effects of the fall. And he's creating this sort of environment that will roll back the clock and restore things to the way they were in the Eden. He's renewing the world. And he's telling them, you're going to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the word kingdom of God, that's synonymous with preaching the gospel. King, proclaiming the kingdom is the same thing as preaching the gospel in Luke. And that indicates that Jesus is taking the nations back. He is reclaiming them, and he's recruiting new citizens from all these nations to join his kingdom, his heavenly eternal kingdom. So this number 70 is significant, and the Jews would immediately have made these connections in their minds. 
Jesus is reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel because the Most High God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to do it. God scattered all these nations at Babel and gave them all over to these various demonic powers. But now that the the Son of God, the Messiah, has come, it's time to bring them home. It's time to recruit people from those nations to come back into the fold, to, to return to God. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus was given all authority to reclaim the nations and to gather them up, reconciling those nations back to his kingdom. All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the harvest is plentiful. Well, of course it is. How big is the harvest? It's the whole planet. Right? It's everybody in the whole world. It's, it's a global harvest. And Jesus says this, this harvest is plentiful. He says something similar after the resurrection at the end of Matthew 28. We know this as the Great Commission. But let's read it. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority. Where? Well, in heaven. That's where the angelic and demonic and the spiritual realm is. But, and on earth where all the nations are. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. nations. (laughs) Make disciples everywhere, all over this whole planet. Blanket this planet with disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and who rose again. And by virtue of that resurrection power and his victory over the grave, he has authority in heaven, the demonic spiritual realm, and in earth over every nation and all the people on the planet. And so the command is to make disciples of all of those people. Teach them to obey baptizing them, which means like get them to to officially declare their allegiance and their loyalty to King Jesus. Now, we saw this last week, earlier in in chapter 9, Jesus gave the reassurance that he is building his church. He's establishing his church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against his church. And so he says here, the laborers are few. It's a huge global harvest. We just don't have enough people that's actually going out there and and recruiting people and calling them to join uh, Jesus and to be brought back uh, and to be reconciled to God. So Jesus' mission to disciple every nation will be accomplished by laborers, by us. We're the ones who's going to do it. So to whatever extent, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled through Christians, through people who are sent by God, who are obeying his command to make disciples of all nations, who are preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And we go with the knowledge and the reassurance that all authority in heaven and earth has already been given to Jesus as his. And we go with the reassurance that he is building his church and no power in hell can prevail against it. 
So we've got some confidence, right? We've got some reassurance that Jesus is victorious. Jesus has all power and authority. Nothing is going to stop the church. We are going on offense. So he's saying that there's an abundant supply of potential Christians. Look around the world. There is no lack of potential Christians because there's people everywhere. The scarcity is in the labor. We've got a labor shortage. That's that's where the, the bottleneck is. So there are more people who are ready and willing to receive the gospel than the laborers who are willing to go and proclaim it. Now, notice something. Jesus wasn't talking to spectators, telling them to pray that God will send laborers. He was talking to laborers, saying, pray for more laborers, right? So he's not saying, hey, you all pray that God will send somebody else other than you. He's saying, I've already sent you. I want you to pray that God will send more of you, right? more people. So you guys go, and while you're going, pray that God will send even more people to go with you. According to uh, Google.com, uh, and uh, which took me to the United Nations website, according to them, um, there are, do you know how many people there are in the world? Almost 8 billion. Well, I guess if that's true, then Google rounds up. Because uh, I Googled it, how many people in the world, and then the answer came up, 8 billion. So 8 billion people in the world. Now, that's 8 billion eternal human souls. Many of those 8 billion people have no clue who Jesus is. They've never heard his name. They wouldn't recognize the name Jesus. They're like, who's that? Never heard the name of Jesus. Some of those people will eventually become Christians. They will be converted. They will become disciples. They'll believe in Jesus. And however many of those people end up becoming Christians, we know for certain that the way that they will become Christians is because some other Christian told them about Jesus. That's how it happens. That's the way that it works. Jesus has delegated the responsibility of evangelizing and discipling the nations to his church, to us, to people. Romans 10, let me read you that. This is Romans 10, verse 13, where Paul lays this out very directly. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's implication here, what he's saying is that there's not going to be more Christians unless there are preachers. And by preachers, that's not like professional preacher people like me. That's like people like you that are Christians who are just telling other people about Jesus. You know, if you, if you sit in a coffee shop with a gospel tract and you tell a friend about Jesus, you're preaching the gospel even though you're not shouting like I sometimes do. Um, but that is still, that is proclaiming, that is announcing the truth of who Jesus is. So, and, you know, in, in, in that sense, every Christian is a laborer. Every Christian has some part to play in the fulfilling of the Great Commission because everybody is called in one way or another to bear witness for the gospel in their context, where, where they are. So if you're a Christian, 
wherever you are, that's where God has you. God has placed you wherever you are, and he's called you to be there, and that's your mission field. And there's a pretty good chance there's a plentiful harvest that is around you where you are. So, and by, the, by where you are, that could either be where you work, or it could be your classroom, school, it could be your neighborhood, uh, it could be your family. But these are people in your life that God has sovereignly ordained that they are in your sphere somehow so that you can have the opportunity to bear witness to Christ to them. And if you do and they, and, you know, they, they don't receive the gospel, they don't, they don't accept it right away, I mean, that, that doesn't mean the work is over. But it does mean that um, you've, you're, you're, advancing, you're advancing the gospel just by proclaiming it, even if they don't believe it right away. The gospel is still being advanced by your faithful testimony. So we can pray, Jesus said, that God will send more laborers into the mission field. Now, there, in, in that sense, we're all laborers. But there's also another sense in which there's a special, uh, a special calling or a unique sending to pioneering areas where people have never heard the gospel, where people have been, uh, they're, they're far from Christ, they've never heard the name of Christ, and there's a, there's a need for a specialized sort of sending of people that can go and uh, embed themselves within a different culture and share the gospel there. So there's, the fact that the, the specialized type of people exist does not mean the rest of us can just neglect our responsibility to bear witness where we are. So we can pray confidently. Whenever we pray for this, we can pray confidently. This is God's heart. This is where God's heart is. This is why Jesus came. And Jesus has authority and power. So we're not, we're not praying as just sort of a, a dream or a wish. It's like, I kind of hope this can work out. But we're praying confidently that this is where God's heart is. This is where God's power is at work. And he will answer. He wants to answer this prayer. Because his purpose his, his mission for being, for, for coming to earth was to reclaim these nations for himself. All right, verse 3. I'm going to read a bunch of verses here. We'll read through verse 12 here. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. All right, now there are several... Several instructions here that are, were particular to the disciples on this particular mission trip that don't all just directly translate to our context. Um, I'm going to leave that be, and you can read a commentary or something if you want to look at some of those specifics. I want to talk about just a couple of things that, uh, that I want to highlight here. Um, the first one um, is here in verse 3, where he said, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 
what he's, what he's warning them about here is that this mission is dangerous. The mission of proclaiming the gospel, there is, so he has all authority and power, that's true, but that does not mean that there isn't a danger involved, that there isn't some, some potential difficulty and hardship that will accompany preaching the gospel. And so there's a human element, that's, that's the one part. I mean, some people just may not like it, and he, you, know, you see an indicator of that here. Some people don't like it, and they'll be like, hey, we don't want to hear any part of that. And so like, you'll, some people go into a town, and the whole town is like, no, we don't want anything to do with that. So it's like there's a human element where it's just, there's difficulty of preaching the gospel to people that don't want to hear it. But as we've already been talking about, there's also a spiritual side. There's a spiritual element in gospel ministry, and that is uh, demonic powers. So even though Jesus has this authority to reclaim the nations, at the same time, these nations are under demonic influence. So the thing that happened where Jesus, or where God gave over these nations to the control of these foreign gods, these pagan demonic powers, that's, that's still in effect until they are reclaimed for Christ, until they are brought back and reconciled to, uh, you know, to God himself. So preaching the kingdom of God is a direct assault on the turf of these evil beings, these, uh, these demons. And they're not going to go down without a fight. And so like Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, hey, I give you authority over demons. But later on in that same chapter, they bring, uh, these people bring this demon-possessed boy to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, uh, your disciples couldn't cast this demon out. And Jesus is like, man, how long am I going to have to be here with you? But it's like there was a, they're saying like they, there's some demons that they could not, that were just too powerful for them. There's this, these entrenched uh, and powers that, that uh, the disciples, they were not able to overcome. Let me read you a couple texts that, that indicate this. Here's 1 John 5, verse 19. It says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And maybe another one, it's more familiar, Ephesians 6, 12 says, for we do not wrestle, like, think about this as an, in an evangelistic encounter, all right? Think about you're, you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and you're thinking, well, I'm nervous, I, wanna, I don't want to say it wrong, I, I don't want to screw it up. And so you're thinking in flesh and blood terms of what you will say and what they will hear in the relationship. Here's what Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not merely a human encounter but rather against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The point being is that Jesus is telling them, be prepared for difficulty. I'm sending you out as a vulnerable lamb in the midst of wolves, which is a ferocious animal. It's a dangerous mission. Be ready for opposition. Now jump down to verse 17, and we're going to see this is where the disciples return. So they've been sent out, they've gotten the warning, and then they come back, verse 17, the 72, which same as before, it's, um, uh, I think it's 70, but the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 
So they got back and they're amped up, you know. They've been out there, they've been proclaiming the kingdom and the, preaching the gospel to people, and they're seeing demonic powers that are trembling before them. They're seeing that these demons are subject to their word. In the name of Christ, they're seeing these demons tremble. So if you just imagine, they're encountering demonic powers. They know they're demonic powers. And at the name of Christ that is uttered on their lips, they're seeing these Whatever manifestation of these demonic powers they're seeing, they back down because they're subject to the name of Christ on the lips of the apostles. Now, the power was not in the apostles themselves. He said the power was in your name. In the name of Christ on the lips of the apostles who are operating with his authorization. But the power is in Christ and in the name of Christ, not the people themselves. And then Jesus says this amazing thing, really kind of, it's startling. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's a pretty incredible thing to say. How did, how did he see that? Was he just kind of looking over their shoulder as he was talking to him? He's like, whoa, what was that? Oh, it's Satan falling like lightning. Like, what's he referring to? It doesn't say. We're not told, was it maybe just a vision that he saw? Was it maybe something literally that, that he had encountered? Was he saying, was he referring to something that he had seen in his divine nature before he was incarnated as the Son of God? We don't know. We're not told. But the point is clear that Jesus is associating the preaching of the gospel, bringing about the collapse of Satan's kingdom. That's his point. They're preaching the gospel. They're saying the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The preaching of the gospel is connected to the collapse of Satan's kingdom, his dominion, the power of Satan crumbling under the weight of God's kingdom that has come and is breaking into this world. Somehow Jesus saw Satan tumble from his arrogant pedestal and cratering down like a meteor. So do you remember what Jesus said? We talked about it last week. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we're seeing now that Jesus builds his church through the proclamation of the gospel, people announcing the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, we saw last week, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So how does he build it? Through the testimony of ordinary people like us. Not these super commando ninja evangelist people that go to these unreached people groups in the jungle somewhere. I mean, God be with them, right? I mean, pray that God will increase their number, but that same power is at work in us. The power of the gospel is at work in ordinary Christians. Whenever we proclaim the kingdom of God, whenever we preach the gospel, the testimony of ordinary Christians, that's how God builds his church. Some of you have been brought into God's kingdom because of other people in this room that say, hey, let's grab coffee. Let me buy you lunch. Let's, let's hang out after work. And then you, you listened. Some of you are the ones who, done, who did that. And you, you took a risk. 
you were like, I, I don't know how this is going to go. They might get mad. Uh, they might hate me for it, but I love them too much to just ignore it. And you shared the gospel with them. And it's not your persuasive power or your silver-tongued rhetoric that saved them. It was the power of Jesus Christ through the gospel that you announced to them. That's what saved them. The Holy Spirit speaking to their heart as you are telling them something, and, and they're hearing it, and the Holy Spirit is talking to their heart saying, this is true, this is true, and giving them the ability to see the glory of Christ through the things that you're saying. Awkward and stumbling and, and, and uh, miscommunicated as it might have been, it doesn't matter, because it is the Spirit of God that worked within them to bring about the salvation of their souls. That's the power of God to rescue that soul from darkness. They're in bondage to Satan. They're captive to having their minds darkened by sin and rebellion, and the Holy Spirit turned on the lights of their soul, and through your words and your testimony, they gave their life to Christ, and now they are an eternal soul, saved, and are part of God's kingdom. They've been rescued out of the domain of darkness, and they've been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son because of your faithful testimony. That's how it works. That's how it works. There's no possible way that the enemies of the Christian faith can ever prevail against the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of ways we can apply this text, but our mission is not exactly the same as here, right? I mean, like in this time, this is before Jesus went to the cross. They're announcing the kingdom of God has arrived in the human flesh of Jesus, but they're not saying Jesus died for your sins because he hasn't done that yet. So there's, there's differences between their mission and our mission, but I want to highlight a couple of things that is parallel. We aren't given the same instructions but we are promised, or, we're, or excuse me, we're not promised the exact same kind of spiritual power. So we can't just leave here today and go walking through the streets of Clifton and track down a few demons and start, hey, in the name of Jesus, I've, I just heard a church that I got, that's, it's different. It's like, I, and we can't get into all the different ways that it's different, but we just have to acknowledge that our mission is not exactly the same, but there, there are parallels that can apply to us. What we can say, at least, is that the mission is still dangerous because we're still pushing back against Satan's power. And we can also say that Jesus still has all authority. Jesus has all power. That came after the resurrection because he said it in the Great Commission. So it's still a dangerous mission, but Jesus still has all authority and power. And so for that reason, evangelism is still spiritual warfare. We're preaching the gospel. We're going off on offense against the powers of hell. So every time you pray for an unbeliever, every time you take a step of faith to share the gospel with someone, every time you open your mouth and you speak words to tell someone about Jesus, Jesus' authority over the demonic realm is at work. You're pushing back the kingdom of darkness, and you have every right as a child of the king to do so. That's your right. In fact, that's your command that you were to speak the gospel and you are doing so pushing back the kingdom of darkness. You're announcing that Jesus is your king, not whatever pagan demon or whatever foreign god happens to be in control around here. You are saying, my Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my king. He's the one that has all authority. So we have no need to be afraid. We have no reason to feel ashamed. All the powers of hell are subject to Jesus who is Lord over all. Amen? Amen. One more verse. Verse 20. As exciting as all that is, 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Hallelujah. As wonderful as it is to know the power of God, as beautiful as it is to know that Christ has conquered the satanic realm and defeated it, there is nothing greater than the simple fact of you and me being sons and daughters of God. You belong to him. There's no greater gift, there's no blessing that is higher than being forgiven of our sin because you and I once were lost, doing evil deeds, hostile in mind, subject to to the powers of the world. We were lost, but Jesus came looking and he found us and he saved us and now we're his. Whenever we talk about the nations, the, the thing it's easy to do is to imagine some foreign land with people that speak a different language, and it's easy to forget that we are the nations. We are the nations. We're not Messianic Jews who are descended from Abraham physically. We are the nations. We're Gentiles. We're people that were far off that have been brought near because of the blood of Christ, because somebody somewhere along the line preached the gospel to us and rescued us from whatever life that we were living and brought us into the family of God. Before we became Christians, we were under the power of the devil, but Christ rescued us through his blood that was shed on the cross, and by his death, he has reconciled us to God and brought us near, welcomed us into his family, and now we are sons and daughters of God. He is our father. He loves us. And we have all of eternity to look forward to, being with him, ruling with him. There's no power in us in the flesh. We have nothing, no power. I've heard, heard it said that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The only reason we're Christians is because the Father loved us, he took pity on us, and he granted us the gift of repentance and faith. And having spiritual power over Satan and demons in hell, that's a means to an end. The end is always Christ himself. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord, as we finish in, in prayer here, we want to listen to your word and obey your call to pray for more laborers to join the harvest. Thank you, Jesus, that you've in your victory on the cross, you do have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you've sent us into every nation to proclaim the victory of Christ, to make disciples, to teach them to obey. And we take comfort in the promise and the hope that you are with us always to the end of the age. And so now, Lord, as laborers in this harvest, we pray for more laborers in Cincinnati. Pray for... Our neighborhoods here, Clifton, Avondale, Coryville, Mount Auburn, Cuff, OTR, downtown, the rest of the area around, uh, around this neighborhood. We pray, Lord, that you will grant salvation to men and women 
boys and girls in this community to know Christ. Send more laborers into these neighborhoods and into our city. Give them boldness to share the gospel. We pray for more conversions. We pray for more churches, more baptisms, and for your glory to, to shine in this area. We pray for Eastern Hills, Christ the King Church, Eastern Hills. We pray for pastors Patrick and Eric. Pray for Madisonville, Fairfax, uh, Marymount communities, tri neighborhoods. We pray, Lord, that you will give them fruitful gospel witness in those neighborhoods and in uh, their broader reach of their church. Send more laborers to those neighborhoods and to their church that will join the mission and will uh, glorify your name by faithful gospel witness. Lord, we pray for Acts 29 uh, that we're a part of for the Ohio River region. We pray for uh, all of the churches and pastors and church plants that are part of our region in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. We ask you, Lord, send more laborers into this region, into this harvest, so that there will be more churches, more conversions, baptisms, more lives changed, more households built up for the glory of God. Send more laborers into this area through Acts 29. In India, Lord, we pray for Vision Nationals. Thank you for Arjuna and for his vision, calling, for Master Seminary there and all the church planters that he has raised up and trained, for the professors that teach in his school. Lord, I pray specifically for doctrinal purity, um, that you will protect them from error, as that has been a problem uh, for them. I pray, Lord, that you will um, send solidly, theologically solid teachers to labor in that mission field. Send more laborers to India for more church plants, more disciples, and transform India that into a, uh, a nation that, that honors Christ. Pray for um, 1520 Coalition, our ministry partner here, and Steve Freeburn, uh, a member here that leads that. I pray for ministries in Albania and Togo, Africa. Lord, I pray that you will give them boldness uh, in the new church plant pastors in Albania and Togo. Pray for outreach event planning in Kosovo that will be done with completeness and that will focus on sharing the gospel. I pray for the immigration papers filed on behalf of Pastor Lapushi from Albania and would find favor with the U.S. Immigration Office. And Lord, send more laborers into that harvest field. Lord Jesus, you tell us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so in every nation on earth. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.